Hi, I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Welcome to another edition of our podcast, Occupied Thoughts. It is my honor today to be hosting Dr. Carol Danielle Kazbari. Uh, Carol is a social scientist with the interdisciplinary doctoral degree in conflict analysis and resolution uh, with 20 plus years of experience in designing and leading programs in the fields of conflict mitigation, peace building, advocacy, and nonviolent resistance in very complex international environments, focusing on the Middle East and North Africa region and Europe. She is a non-resident scholar with MEI's program on Palestine and Palestinian Israeli affairs. And you can see her whole bio at the Middle East Institute's website. I've asked Carol to sit down with me today to talk about the situation on the grounds in Israel-Palestine and in particular inside the Green Line, which is where Carol is from and she has spent years studying and researching and writing about. I wanna note that we're having this conversation while in the background there is um, unprecedented violence um, inside the Green Line, inside the areas where you have mixed Jewish um, Israeli populations with Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, it, is, uh, it is breathtaking violence, um, which I think has really shattered a lot of, um, a, a lot of the, the, the confidence in, in what the future even looks like in Israel. So, so that's the backdrop. And, and Carol, I am enormously grateful of you taking the time to talk to me um, in these circumstances, um, which are very difficult and I know you're very busy. So I wanna get right to it. I've promised you, I will ask you four questions. Um, so the first thing I wanna ask you is just a general question. So the current situation in Israel-Palestine is clearly volatile and, and escalating. Um, can you talk about why this is happening now? Thank you, Lara, for having me uh, here today uh, for your invite. Uh, this is not an easy time for me, uh, for my family or for any Palestinian anywhere. Uh, many of us feel that we are going through another Nakbe, another pogrom, we're targeted, we have no one to defend us. So uh, it's just uh, with this, I'm coming to this interview just to set the the, the the feeling in the background for this. Uh, for your question, why uh, this is happening now? Actually, it is happening all the time. It's happen It's not only happening now. Now you can actually see it. Um, it's happening there for Palestinians everywhere. Now Israelis see it. Now feel it. They're reacting to it. That's the difference. There have been many analysts, much analysis, many analysts who spoke about the frustrations from Netanyahu, uh, the corruption, the safety issues within the Palestinian society inside Israel, and the disappointment from the political leadership like uh, Mansour Abbas or the other Abbas from the PA. But these are not the reasons, as analysts have been saying. These are the symptoms of a long existing condition called colonization. They might have contributed to the already existent feelings of rage and frustrations uh, persons have been living with uh, everywhere, but this has been building up since decades reaching this climax. It's like asking, what is the reason for the first intifada? When you read the textbooks or history books about that, you will discover many, many reasons, much of them triggered by very, very small events, not even um, important. Uh, but to be able to answer this, we really need to dig deeper, very deep into the root causes of this rage and frustration. Let's, but let's start with what's on the surface. And 
what we know as the possible reasons for the causes of this. One, we know uh, that it was, it started again as just in the second intifada with Al-Aqsa Mosque being under attack or the perception of being threatened by Israelis and its forces. Second, social media is a huge factor, something that did not exist in the first or in the second intifada, which created a feeling of uh, unity among Palestinians, but also feeling of threat. Um, it awakened those feelings of threat of being dispossessed again. We watched all over, all you know, all all of us, uh, how over uh, 300 Palestinians were injured in Al-Aqsa al-Haram al-Sharif. Uh, social media was flooded with clips showing uh, how the police is tossing uh, stun grenades into the carpets of the mosques. Uh, the flames and the smoke were visible from far away intentional, non-intentional, and so on, but it embodied the collective nightmare concerning the harm uh, to the holiness of, of that mosque. While thousands on the other side uh, of young uh, Jewish uh, marked uh, Jerusalem Day Parade in the nearby uh, Western Wall Plaza, these only made feelings run higher. So personally, from living uh, Jerusalem for 20 years before I moved to uh, Washington, D.C., I witnessed firsthand how the annual flag parade by Israeli nationalist or religious Zionist groups in the old city, which meant to cement Israeli claims to the contested area, can flare up the area. But still, every year, I'm astonished how the Israeli police gives the go-ahead to this parade. While also this year happens that in the nearby area in Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood, settlers are trying to evict dozens of families from their homes and hundreds of Palestinians, including international Israelis, were gathered there every night to support their families. So there is here a significant provocation taking place by the Israeli right. There were also provocations by official representatives of the municipality. For example, the deputy mayor of the city who expressed his hope that one of the wounded protesters, he was hoping that he would have been shot in the head instead. That went viral. Um, and that's representative of the city, uh, you know, the city who, 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 who has both, both Israeli and Palestinians. The deputy prime minister also of Israel talked about a long-term sustained effort to keep Palestinians out of the city and bring in more Jews into the city, something that obviously has been uh, critical in the way that Palestinians feel about this issue. Also, Netanyahu, just like Sharon before him, they both have an interest in the escalation in Al-Aqsa Mosque. Both of them started there. For example, the Israeli press is saying that the police acted like they were provoking rather than trying to end the confrontation, particularly in the behavior, uh, in the assault on the mosque. And there is no question, whatever role Netanyahu played here, whatever the benefits he has, he does not only benefit from the way he distracts from his political and legal troubles in Israel, but he benefits mainly because he's prevented so far what looks like an eminent government forward by coalition and his opponents when we heard this morning from Bennett. So another important cause that we can talk about today is that of Israel colonization, which got worse during Trump's era, era or, or, or time. We are witnessing now 
the consequences of Trump's legacy, that of Netanyahu's as well. This idea of divide and rule, of creating tension and animosity, of changing the status quo of Jerusalem, the outcomes are clear today. His unconditional support to Israel's project in East Jerusalem and the West Bank, the de facto confiscations, adding to that the normalization with the Arab countries, all of these has awakened the Palestinian and made them realize they are alone. Just like they felt during the first Intifada when the world was busy with Iran and Iraq conflict. But this time, these countries have been perceived by Palestinians as traitors who stab Palestinians in the back to make deals with Israel that would harm their just cause. So these are just few of what we can see as reasons or causes for the eruption of the current upheaval. Thanks for that. I, I think that's really important framing because when I, a lot of times you read about this in the press now, you hear people talking about it. I feel like they're focusing on the immediate triggers and not the underlying sort of pathologies. Um, there was a piece in 972 yesterday or today by the person decided his first name, I think a young Palestinian basically saying, you know, either Israel wants to either kill us fast or kill us slow, either way we're dying as a description of living in Gaza. Um, you know, the Trump administration, you had an acceleration of phenomenon that were already longstanding. It was just a question of whether they're fast or slow. But if you're a Palestinian on the ground today, what you're seeing is this incredible acceleration and legitimization of that acceleration. I think you, you framed that really powerfully. So thank you. Um, the second question I want to ask you, and, and I have, there are some assumptions built into this and feel free to challenge my assumptions. It feels to me like a, a big difference today compared to previous periods of upheaval that we've seen, particularly when you think about battles, you know, wars between the Israeli army and, and Hamas and Gaza, is the spread of protest and conflict to areas inside the Green Line. We mentioned that at the beginning. Can you talk about what's happening inside the Green Line with respect to Palestinian citizens of Israel? Can you talk about their involvement and what's motivating it? Can you talk about the reaction of Israeli authorities and also of, of Israeli citizens? Because we're seeing a, a whole lot of vigilantism, which is frankly pretty, I think, just gutting to watch. It's just terrifying. Um, and, and I know that I've, I've heard for a long time this idea that you know, people have that Palestinian citizens of Israel are at this point becoming more assimilated, more Israeli than ever before. You know, seeing what's happened now would suggest that you know, to the extent that they're more assimilated in some aspects of their lives and their behavior, their identity seems more Palestinian maybe now than it's been at any time since 1948. Um, so if you care to talk about any of that or challenge any of that. Yeah, let, let me start with the argument or with the assumption that um, of that surprise effect or the idea that people are surprised from the Palestinians uh, of 48 or inside the Green Line or Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, I mean, I've witnessed this, uh, this um, um, claim so many times in the past. The expressive surprise is always present also in the Israeli press and society. And that is due to the mere fact that they do not know the people they dominate. Usually those under domination or occupation know uh, uh, their dominator or the occupier much better, much better than, you know, than the opposite. So, um, uh, just from living in, 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 uh, inside the Green Line for most of my life, uh, 40 years before I moved to the U.S., 
I have to say that the Israelis do not know much about their Palestinian neighbors living in the same town or, or, or city or even sitting uh, on the main desk in the, in the university as what happened with me as well. Um, uh, I, I learned that they truly believe that this land was without people that belonged to people without a land. They really believe that. And they believe that the population who lived on this land are just Arabs who happen to live there. Um, along with the Jews for, you know, and the land belonged to the Jews only and Israel and, you know, and that's the Zionist dream. In the Israeli textbooks, which I analyzed for a long time for a previous degree that I had, uh, there is nothing about Palestinians, what, who they are, what they are, what is the Nakba, what is a disaster for them. There's nothing about Palestinians being uprooted. What an ordinary Israeli citizen, doesn't matter, left, right, mainstream, doesn't matter. What they know about Palestinian is almost nothing. And it's all coming from the state funded media. It's coming from um, uh, the education system. And recently, as you saw, the media has been super insightful. It has been for decades. I'm also a person who worked with media professionals on covering conflicts. And one of the things I was teaching about how to cover conflicts sensitively, um, I mean, uh, since its inception, the mainstream media calls, the inception of the country calls us Israeli Arabs. They call us a minority. We don't have collective rights. Uh, we are not serving in the army. We are only calling for rights and equal rights, and we are undermining the Jewish state. They see us as a demographic threat because of the birth rate. So it's not by accident that they feel surprised. That suddenly woke up one day and realized that um, they, they, you know, they, you know, it's not like suddenly we woke up and realized we want to revolt, we want to protest. The Palestinians know very well their dominator, their occupier. They know how they work. They know who he is and who is not. Um, what are you know the boundaries? How they allow them to live, where to live, where to buy, even who to marry like in my case, who I should marry, who I should not marry. <laughs> in my case where my husband didn't get uh, um, uh, residency for over 15 years, living a temporary life on and off, on and off. So they know that very, very well. Uh, the, 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 the Palestinians know exactly how their occupier works. So every time there is a protest, even the smallest one in the street, Israelis see these protesters as a threat as what happened to them suddenly, as if everything was cool. There was coexistence in Haifa. What just happened? In Haifa, when it started, for example, the protests were nonviolent. People were holding signs of flags. They were chanting. A friend of mine sent me some videos. It was nothing. But then suddenly the police were getting ready to take them down all, arrest, beating, without any justification. Um, there was no one stoned. There was not any attacks on police or anyone. Uh, as if the perception for, for, for Israelis or for the police, as if the Arabs were going to kill them or shake the status quo, uh, and they wouldn't allow that to happen. So since the establishment of the countries, Israelis are fearful. They are fearful because they're ignorant, and they are ignorant because the country, the state made them this way. So this is strange syndrome, what I call in the Israeli side all the time, the syndrome, I call it the syndrome of the permanent surprise. Uh, I hear that repeatedly in the past. Also, the descriptions nowadays of the Palestinians 48 as if the barrier of fear has been broken. Uh, this is really a wrong way to see it. 
because in all previous uprisings, uh, popular uh, Palestinian movements in the past, the, the barrier was broken. I can just name few. The barrier of fear was uh, broken on the land day, 1976. The barrier of fear was broken in the first intifada in 89. It was broken in the second intifada 2000. It was broken in uh, the demonstration of the Prower plan uh, of removing Bedouins in the Negev in 2013. I was there in all of those. The Palestinians are, the thing is the Palestinians are in constant movement to break the fear. They are going through an ongoing accumulative process of breaking that barrier of fear, like any oppressed people in the world. And it is an endless state uh, uh, of breaking the fear due to the presence of force and oppression, which they, they need to resist. Uh, so the accumulation and the buildup is very important process because it's a continuation of the previous action and it's a linkage to the next phase. It is part of um, uh, ongoing process of reaction or reacting to a continued oppression. However, that Israeli surprise syndrome is an existential condition that allows Israel to justify their colonial behavior. Uh, they would, for example, not look inside and see maybe their policies of apartheid, their policies of demolishing homes or the over 62 discriminatory laws like the Jewish nation law a few years ago, or even the Nekbi law, uh, not being able to commemorate the Nekbi or any of those, or the arrest, or any confiscations. Maybe they, they, they're the responsible, you know, maybe that's the root cause. For the Israelis, they're not responsible. These are not the reasons. Rather, they claim or they argue that the barrier of fear is broken in the sense the solution is let's frighten them more. Uh, so, so that they, you know, they return to their homes, to their lady, to their, you know, fun life to their businesses and so on and forget about this. Or, um, or the intimidation has already started, threatening to boycott Palestinian towns and businesses, uh, which also happened a few years ago, if you remember, or lead to a political harassment or open police files. Like now in Nazareth, there are hundreds of police files, although Nazareth, there's nothing there. Suddenly they're grabbing people from the streets and, 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 and trying to investigate them for I don't know, raising signs. Uh, there are beatings, there are arrests. So you saw lynches also in many places. But the most important thing in this regard that the Israeli side and its media deal with these uprisings when we talk uh, about surprise. There is no surprise here. This is there is a context here that needs to be taken seriously. And there is this, there is a momentum that was created by Israel, which Palestinians um uh, have seized and they're building on. They're building on more powerfully than before. So in terms of this generation and in general and without looking at statistics, the protesters are mostly young in their 20s and 30s. Um, and the generational, uh, the generational thing could be um, of an importance here because uh, don't forget, this is the third generation after the Nakbi. Uh, their grandparents lived in Akbe, their parents lived the military rule, and this generation grew up looking at it all through social media, even without much education. Uh, they were aware of racial injustice protests in the U.S. 
they traveled much more than, uh, you know, than their parents. They connect with the outside world through the different applications today. In general, this generation is very connected beyond the green line, uh, beyond the fictional borders that Israel has created. This generation was born and raised under a Palestinian authority that acts as an agent for Israel and is suppressing by force any manifestation of effective protest against Israel or the practices of the authority itself. So the children of this generation know that the Jew can return home to Israel while the indigenous Palestinians who become a refugee uh, in Syria, in Yarmouk refugee camp or whatever, they are oppressed also, they're stateless. Um, all of these people cannot do that, I cannot come home. Uh, the people of this generation know that Israelis can live anywhere in the West Bank, in settlements, in Jerusalem, in the Galilee, in the Negev, uh, while they and their people are prohibited from, prohibited from living in more than 700 Israeli towns, uh, which were built on confiscated Palestinian land. So what I call this, the internet generation and the social media have an average knowledge, average knowledge about the Nakbi and the occupation and so on, the demolishing of home and, and, and Jer Jerusalem issues. They may have heard about the Human Rights Watch report, about Beit Salem's uh, apartheid report, uh, since all of them were published in Arabic. Uh, they might learn a little bit, of, uh, you know, a, a bit. So their knowledge, let's put it this way, is many times greater than their parents when they were, you know, when they were in the same age. So, um, so this generation has grown up exposed to the corruption of the political parties, both the Palestinian Authority and uh, the deliberate neglect of Jerusalem and its people. And inside 48, this generation knows that the interest of the large part of their leadership are related so much to parliamentary representation in the Knesset and the revenues that finance the full-time parties who do not do any real work in the field to organize or to defend people. Recently, actually, with the efforts to form a government, both Ayman Oudi and Mansour Abbas have disappointed their voters. They presented a distorted speech to the Palestinian voters, whereas instead of bringing the Israeli or the opponent closer to your position, they went ahead and conceded and acknowledged their inferiority and the superiority of the master Jew, which happened that when, when each one of those um, recommended Gantz or Bennett or Lapid or whoever. So the protest inside the Green Line broke just like in the first Intifada, a popular nonviolent resistance, which started, as I said, nonviolently and then prepared by young men and women, all even before Hamas announced its warning or started its rockets, uh, firing the rockets. However, Israel exploited this stupid move by Hamas to transfer the confrontation to airstrikes and images of the rockets failing on homes and burning and, and so on. This diversion was intentional. It took away the attention of what's happening really inside the historic events of popular resistance, which we haven't seen before inside 48, uh, you know, and East Jerusalem and every town, you know, all together, all of these were put aside. So this time Israel got 
unintended help from Hamas again. So um, the Palestinians face challenges imposed by Israel. You know, they first they feel like they are being uh, uh, treated as a demographic threat. Uh, they are denied equal rights before the law. Uh, the Palestinians in the West Bank, you know, just to give a wrap up for the Palestinians everywhere, how how they feel threatened. So the inside 48, they're, they're perceived as democratic threat. The, those in the West Bank are ruled by Israeli military rule with no voice uh, in that government at all. And the Palestinians in Jerusalem are cut off and in separate situation altogether. And the Palestinians in Gaza are besieged and routinely, routinely bombarded by Israeli military in a massive open air prison. So the feelings of humiliation are great and they are so common now to every Palestinian, no matter where they are. They feel they are forced to fight for their very own existence. So the story of the attempt to evict Palestinians from Sheikh Jarrah to connect to the narrative and the Nakbi of Palestinians everywhere. It was just a perfect storm. Thanks, and I want to come back to the Nakbe in, in my last question. Um, so let's ho just hold on to that thought. Before we do, though, I want to, and maybe this isn't fair, but I, I want to ask you to take out your crystal ball um, for a minute and, and talk about how you see this playing out for Palestinian citizens of Israel in terms of, you know, what is it they want to achieve or hope to achieve, the risks that they're running by, by going out and protesting the way they are, you know, can this protest be satisfied um, without significant changes and the kind of significant changes that it's almost inconceivable would be possible under any plausible Israeli government given where Israeli politics are right now. And attached to that, you're sitting in Washington DC as I am, you know, what do you think the Biden administration should be doing? Um, you know, do you think they're doing it right so far? Um, I don't think anyone does, but if you do, that would be great, tell us, but what should they be doing? Yeah, uh, for your first part of the questions about uh, the Palestinians and what they will face next, um, the Palestinians are definitely facing a big risk now uh, and, a, and an opportunity at the same time. There's no opportunity without risk and there's no risks without opportunities. Um, we saw last night and this morning also the horror scenes of lynching Arabs, stabbing, vandalizing home and properties and terrorizing people in the streets and even their homes. I just spoke to you about uh, my sister before we started this call and um, how terrified she was in Haifa um, when um, the familia, they called themselves groups, were just smashing the cars under her house and she was just afraid to even look from the window. So we witnessed the attacks on Palestinians by Israeli citizens with guns in Haifa, Ramle, Lod, Led, Beersheva, and other places. Um, they, just to, to, to say shortly, almost every family I'm hearing from, they were addicted and obsessed with social media. And now, including my family, they don't want to see any video. They don't want to feel anything. They actually want to close the lights and doors and stay home. They feel that if they just leave or they, they're just, they may never come back. Um, that feeling of, of, of threat is, is just um, unimaginable. Me sitting here in Washington is making it even harder. 
that I cannot be with them, that I cannot help them. Um, only I can protest in the street like we did two days ago. And then on Saturday, again, uh, we have a big protest coming uh, uh, in, in Washington, D.C. this Saturday. So just to go back, the first risk, the first imminent threat for Palestinians is the physical violence, which we already you know, are witnessing now um, without protection. Um, the second issue uh, is the structural violence, which is much worse. And it, it, the, its impact is uh, longstanding. Uh, this is not carried out by individuals in the streets. This is hidden to a greater extent or lesser extent inside the structures. So uh, through the numerous policies and discriminatory laws that already exist for Palestinians inside Israel and that target them, we can predict much more policies, much more bills and laws to target them. Um, uh, you know, the, the, there is an unequal advantages given to Jews, which is built into the very social, political, and economic system that governed them. So that being said, you could predict much more of that. Um, also, through collective punishment, they will try to discipline them again and put them back in their place, as we say. Um, now we have hundreds of arrests everywhere. Um, you can expect unfair trials, unlimited time of detention, uh, media incitements like you see now. Um, uh, I'm following the Israeli news, all channels. They're just not doing their job. They're inciting against their own population, uh, their own, you know, uh, Palestinian communities. Uh, you could expect boycotting the Arab markets. Uh, you already saw them smashing businesses, uh, the, the windows of some businesses and so on. And as I said, you could expect introducing the new bills in the next uh, Knesset. So um, they have done this, by the way, after the second intifada, and after the land day and many, many other memorable days for Palestinians. But my feeling is that this time is different. It's going to be different for the Palestinians. The political leader, for example, Mahmoud A. Mansour Abbas tried to stop these protests at the beginning. He called for the people to go home and not to protest. People actually despised him on social media for doing so. He was not even allowed to come to Sheikh Jarrah or pass by Imel Fahim. So it's time, it's different. Uh, there's no leadership here. There's no one motivating these people or mobilizing them. Um, so not sure though where this is gonna go, but people will never forget these historical moments. And these moments will be shaping the next relationship between Israelis and Palestinians inside the Green Line. As for Biden, uh, this issue was not a priority for him, as he declared several times when he took office. And even now, he still undermines the Palestinian feelings by showing his unwavering support for Israel's security and legitimate right to defend themselves, while showing his empathy to Palestinians, totally zero empathy and sympathy to Palestinians, to the loss of Palestinian lives, to their fear, to their lack of security, and so on. He announced yesterday that he will be sending Hadi Amir, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, to speak to the leader on both sides. Not sure where that's gonna go, but so far the US has not performed well uh, in terms of the public posture. 
particularly in re with regards to the evictions of Sheikh Jarrah. You know very well that those evictions are not something like uh, you call on both sides to de-escalate. Let's de-escalate. <laughs> like, what do you want? The evictions are wrong. These evictions are against international law. The evictions have been called out by the UN. They've been called as a war crime. These evictions were called by the EU as a deliberate violation of international law. Um, the president of the United States want to take the US on a course of advocacy of human rights and democracy in contrast or to contrast the, the Trump administration. He wants to lead, he wants to lead the way on human rights, but you cannot take this position over an act that is so immoral to start with. And, but beyond the you know, morality issue, um, that it, it is so valiantly against international law. Can Biden really weigh in strategically in a way that makes a difference in a relationship with Israel uh, and call to calm in an effective way if, they, if he doesn't even go out and make a comment or declaration about anything so clear cut for the international community? Um, and it's so against every international principle. So as long as the U.S. is not prepared to hold Israel to any account, any statement from Biden administration about the ongoing violence uh, would not lead to de-escalation. I actually think the opposite. It would lead the opposite to more escalation. I really hope uh, that they don't make it worse. I, I appreciate that. I, I will say it's sitting here in Washington. I know numerous people who are not not me i don't i don't engage at this level at this point but numerous people who understand israel palestine very well engaged energetically to try to get the biden administration to weigh in in advance of this escalation when it was clear where things were going as we came towards the end of ramadan and headed into jerusalem day and headed into a court ruling on sheikh Sharah, and they didn't um, and, and I think history will, will not judge that kindly. I think that was a, an unbelievable um, abdication uh, of, of responsibility, um, whether you care about Israelis or Palestinians or about international law or anything else, just, just extraordinary. Um, your last, this last question, I wanna talk about the Nakba. And, and you know, one of the things that's been striking to me watching the past week or two unfold, I'm remembering my colleague Danny Seiderman in Jerusalem when sometimes he talks about the, the motivations of the settlers and the people who work with the settlers in Jerusalem. He's long argued that they're still fighting the 1948 war. They're trying to finish the 48 war decisively. That's what it's really been about. If they weren't satisfied with 48, they weren't satisfied with 67, they're still fighting 48 to get everything. And looking at what's happening on the ground inside the green line right now, um, it feels like a lot of this really is about 48. Um, it's about ex Israeli extremists wanting to end the, 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 the hated Palestinian presence inside the green line, which forces them to occasionally have to be aware of the, the, what, what was required to create the state of Israel. And for Palestinian citizens of Israel, continuing to fight for rights that have been violated or denied since 48 and sort of uh, swept under the rug this whole time. So with that as the framing, talk to me about what the current situation discloses about the consequences of not dealing with these unresolved issues of the Nakba for Israelis, both Palestinian citizens and Jewish citizens. 
And, and moving ahead, um, you've already said, you know, both risk and opportunity. You know, I think a lot of people are hoping to find a way to, to roll things back to status quo ante, which means sweeping this back under the rug, having the ice, a thin layer of ice form so you continue skating on its surface. Is that possible? Is that desirable? And assuming it's not possible or desirable, what does a new reality look like where um, Israelis of all, both Jewish and non-Jewish, contend with this shared but very different experience of the Nakba, which has never been dealt with? Yeah, <clears throat> let's start with how it all started and how um, this whole storm has started. It started with Sheikh Jarrah uh, as a symbol for the unending Nakbi. The heavy-handed forces on Al-Aqsa in Jerusalem, which is home for Palestinian, this is all fine. But Sheikh Jarrah and the forced displacement uh, have mobilized almost every Palestinian everywhere. Um, because in Sheikh Jarrah, you really have the entire story narrated. You have the Palestinian refugees from 48, actually, who were removed, they were displaced, they lived there, they're displaced again, so the trauma is all over again. There is no one Palestinian family I know who doesn't know about the loss of home and the denial of identity. So this is a real lived experience. Even the Palestinian citizens of, of, of Israel who were internally displaced, many of them are internally displaced. In, in, you know, in 48, they lost their homes and property. Even for them, it's an ongoing process uh, or experience facing colonization on every level, cultural, legal, you can name it. So the consequences of the Nekbi, including uh, the displacement of most Palestinians from their ancestor lands and, and going stateless, you know, being stateless remain unresolved until this day. And it's gonna get worse as it gets repeated in different forms and different places. Uh, until we come to grips, Lara, with the political and cultural legacy of the Nakbi, calm, stability, and normality will elude Israel and the whole Middle East. Uh, after decades of fruitless struggle and brutality, Palestinians still or have somewhat bitterly come to accept that the Nakbe cannot be reversed or even uh, uh, really redressed. They have accepted the two-state solution with a heavy heart, uh, with a Palestinian state uh, based in the territories uh, Israel occupied in 67, living side by side with the Jewish state. Uh, that was for them the only available outcome. But even that has proven unattainable. Uh, so the trauma of the Nekbi cannot be addressed until the rest of the world, and particularly Israel, recognizes its validity and importance. The events does not compare to the Holocaust. Very little else does. But Jews and Palestinians are two people both marked by definitive historical traumas that define their worldviews. The difference is that the Jewish and Israeli narratives continue to an um, epiphany of redemption uh, in the founding and flourishing state of Israel, while for Palestinians permanently dispossessed 
uh, living in exile or under occupation, the trauma is enduring and still unfolding. So but as also I said, for that, just to add the unfolding, I mean, the when you say everything comes together in Sheikh Sarah, it also comes together that these people who live there, who are already refugees living there, it's not just that they're being displaced, they're being displaced in an act of redemption of Jewish right of return to their homes, which is denied wholesale to Palestinians. I mean, it's a really in-your-face demonstration of the ongoing, when you talk about an ongoing Nakba, that I can't, I can't think of anything that's a better example of all the pieces of that. Yeah, absolutely. You, 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 you expressed it 100% uh, exactly how Palestinians are seeing it. Um, the thing is, as I said, Nakba is not a historical memory for most Palestinians. It's a lived experience. It's a daily, present time lived experience. Recognizing that and acting uh, on it will be indispensable for understanding the Palestinian perspective, as you just expressed. As long, uh, you know, to be able to uh, ending the conflict and the Nakbi, you have to allow, you know, uh, to be able to allow Jews and Arab and the whole world to, to move on is really by recognizing the Nakbi. Until the Israeli government and its occupation and dispossession policies change, the Nakba will continue. Until the separation wall is demolished and all Palestinians are granted freedom of movement, the Nakba will continue. Until the siege of Gaza comes to an end and solution for Palestinian refugees are found, the Nakba will continue. And until the Israeli government recognizes and apologizes for all its wrongdoings, and embarks on a genuine reconciliation with the Palestinians, the Nakbi will continue. Because only then the Nakbi will be or truly be commemorated as something of the past. We close that page and it's in the past, but that's never happened. In the meantime, Palestinians like myself will continue to share our stories. We will continue to demand justice and equality. And most of all, we'll continue to be proud of our cultural heritage without fear, um, you know, the history and the resilience of our families. That will never stop. I think we should stop it there. That is an enormously powerful way to end this. Um, Carol, thank you so much uh, for taking time to, to speak with me today. I think this is a very... It's a difficult time, but your words, I think, matter now really more than more than ever. You know, we say things like that all the time, but I think it's true. Um, on behalf of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, I want to thank you for, for talking to us. And um, that concludes this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Um, you can listen to it, uh, find it on our website, fmep.org, uh, and look for other podcasts in the same vein in the future. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Laura. Goodbye.